the Japanese adaptation, the beast is actually played in the role of the woman. They're gender swapped. And it's the woman presents herself as non-traditional. She always wears a black cloak. She loves anything gothic and horror. And that's very against what society expects of women. They want them to be feminine and pleasing to the eye. And that's how they experience expectations of feminism. And then, of course, in the South Korean versions, their society is an awful lot more equipped and used to experiencing cosmetic surgery. So instead of a magic wand transforming Cinderella, it's done through full body cosmetic surgery and they create a new woman. There's a formula for beauty there. It's been commercialized. As much as we give out about cosmetics and things like that, they have an actual mathematical and scientific formula for creating a perfect face. Hi there, welcome to another episode of our podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That? by the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. My name is Dani, and as a PhD student, I chat with early career researchers, or ECRs, hoping to learn from their academic journeys. Today's guest is Holly McDonnell, who has a BA and MA in English Language and Literature from Mary Immaculate College and is currently a second year PhD student there, researching feminism and fairy tales. And she digs into two Disney adaptations of Beauty and the Beast, as well as a South Korean and a Japanese drama adaptation, and also an erotic novel adaptation. But before we hear from Holly why she has chosen to research feminism and fairy tales, I'd like to invite you all to have a look at our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You will find us with the handle at what to do with that, where the two is spelled with the number two. You can find more tips and tricks by and for ECRs there, as well as information about our upcoming guests. We'd love to hear what you think, so don't forget to rate us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe. All right, now we're going back to Holly's story. Holly holds a BA in English Language and Literature and History, which is a joint degree from the University of Limerick at the Mary Immaculate College. Already then, she wrote about Cinderella, but she continued with an MA in Modern English Language and Literature at the same university, which she completed with honors. After taking a short break, Holly went back to the University of Limerick and the Mary Immaculate College to pursue a PhD in English language and literature. For her research that is currently titled Betraying the Beholder, the Beauty, the Beast and the Deconstruction, Holly receives a scholarship for three years. During her PhD, Holly also works as a department assistant and tutor for Mary Immaculate College. And in the meantime, she managed to publish two papers and present her work at various conferences. So welcome to our show, Holly, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for such a wonderful introduction. I need to get you to write my author bios from now on. That was so lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, I've heard this from other guests as well, but I just read your resume and I (laughs) made a short collection and I wrote it down briefly. So it's really all you. Uh, Yeah, you can own it. That's all right. You did all of that. Thank you. It's pretty impressive (laughs) and that's why you're here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad that you were able to take some of your busy time uh, to share it with us and have a little bit of a drink. Uh, I'm having my usual amaretto, even though it's still a little bit early. (laughs) What are you having? (laughs) So I brought a Guinness mug because I wanted to be very Irish, but it is currently 11 a.m. and I thought that was a bit too early for Guinness, even though I am Irish. So inside the cup is Barry's tea. So it's a bit of a debate where I'm from, whether you prefer Barry's tea or lion's tea. Um, it's kind okay. of a distinctive division with us Irish. So I'm a Barry's tea kind of girl. So that's what I have in, in my cup this morning. Okay, I hope we didn't just lose a few Irish listeners who like the other tea. <laughs> Come back. I so, promise I'm okay. <laughs> I hope they stayed. Yeah, cheers. 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 Good morning. <laughs> cheers. <laughs> okay, so while we're sipping our drinks... Um, And you have a big mug, so we can talk for a long time, I feel. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to start with a few short questions. And usually I start off with asking, uh, what does your morning routine look like? My morning routine involves a lot of regret of staying up so late the night before. 
um, a real question on whether I do indeed want to get up this early or have to get up this early. <laughs> but once I am out of bed, I tend to stay in my pajamas as long as I can. I wash my face, I get my breakfast, I check my emails, I read a little bit, and then I get dressed and ready for my day, whether I'm going to be working at home or going into the postgraduate building that's here on campus. I have a little uh, office and room to myself, so I work in there an awful lot. So okay. it's not very exciting or very healthy, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> Most people are like, I have a smoothie well, and a run. <laughs> I'm like, pajamas. Oh yeah, or, or yoga in the morning or yeah. walking with the dogs. And then I'm like, oh, maybe that's the reason I don't have a dog. None of that over here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, but uh, that's fair enough. Not everyone is a morning person. um, And I've seen that it's very diverse. I think it's maybe 60-40 with the people that I've spoken with so far. We might have to do a recap at the end of the season to actually find (laughs) out the statistics on this one. (laughs) A poll to see who's actually a morning person. (laughs) So as you have studied history, because that's mm-hmm. uh, that was part of your studies together with English, right? Yes. I wanted to ask you, mm-hmm. if you had a time machine, when and where would you visit? Oh, that's such a good question. I think I'd want to see either very early Ireland, because a lot of our history is very much based in myth and based on the mythology that we passed down. So I'd like to see what it was actually like. But another big part of me wants to say Rome. I want to see the Colosseum being built okay. just because I love it. So like, it's one of my favorite parts of history was the Roman Empire. So I think I'll have to go with, sorry, Ireland, but I'll have to go with the Colosseum being built in Rome. <laughs> the last I think they'd brick. be able to forgive you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the Colosseum after all. <laughs> and the Roman Empire was quite impressive. Yeah, so. and I know that's very vague because it spans like centuries, but... To be there for the last brick being put on the Colosseum, I would just, oh, be amazing. All right, cool. (laughs) Then uh, another question also relates to your study and your research topic. Uh, I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite fairy tale? Is it Beauty and the Beast? It's not, (laughs) surprisingly. Okay. (laughs) Um, I think I would do an injustice to my favorite fairy tale if I chose to do it for my studies. So my favorite fairy tale uh, is an Irish fairy tale. It's the children of Lear, where Lear's children are turned into swans. Um, and they eventually see his okay. fa- their father die. And it's quite sad, as is a lot of Irish fairy tales, I think. But that's definitely one that I hold near and dear to my heart. And then, of course, The Little Mermaid, because any child growing up wants to be a mermaid. So <laughs> in more general terms, definitely The Little Mermaid, I'd say. Okay, that sounds nice. So hopefully we'll figure out later why you chose to go for Beauty and the Beast. Uh, <laughs> once we get to the part of your PhD, we'll get to that. Um, but before we get to the PhD, we need to see uh, whatever ad- else happened for you to get where you are today, right? That's what we're interested in. Mm-hmm. So to start at the beginning, uh, the question really is, why did you kick off your academic journey with a joint degree in English and history? Um, I knew I wanted to get into teaching on some level. And English was always my favorite subject. It was probably my best subject in school as well. So I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I remember I visited my current college, Mary I, on an open day. So uh, my college, Mary I, is affiliated with the University of Limerick. They're kind of our mothership, I always say. And I visited both campuses, but I just remember coming to Mary I and feeling like I was at home I was so comfortable. It was such a lovely campus. Everyone I met was so engaging. And the lecturers who presented on their subjects, they really had a passion for what they were doing. They were so active in their research. And I just remember thinking, if I'm going to have someone teach me, I want someone who's passionate. So Mary I was just such a draw in and it was such a good fit for me. Um, so English and history was an easy choice and I thought I wanted to do secondary school teaching, which is teaching the ages of 12 to 18 here in Ireland. Um, so that was my plan in first and second year. And then in the third year of my degree, we're very, very lucky. We get the whole year to go off campus so we can either work or study abroad or do a combination of both. And since I don't like to let opportunity pass me by, I chose to do a semester of each. 
So for my first semester, I worked off campus. I actually got to work as a secondary school teacher. Um, I got okay. to help out as a teacher's aide and help plan lessons. And I actually got to teach a little bit as well. And then for semester two, I studied abroad in the United States, in Pennsylvania. So when I cool. worked as a secondary school teacher, I suddenly realized that an awful lot of the teaching was very confined in what results you wanted rather than the material you were teaching. And I guess that's kind of a bit of a discussion on education in Ireland today, which I'm not the biggest expert in, so I'm probably not the best to speak of. But from my experience, I felt it was more being taught for an end goal rather than to learn about the subject. And I think I was so passionate about English and I loved it so much that that's not the way I wanted to teach it. So I had a bit of an existential crisis. I'm not going to lie. Okay. <laughs> all Very of a sudden, early my, on in the beginning. Yeah. I noticed my career plan had all of a sudden changed. and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had remember fantasizing about lecturing and thinking, God, wouldn't it be amazing to just focus on one subject and to be able to research and write about it and teach it to people. But I remember thinking I'm definitely not good enough. So I had imposter syndrome way early on before I even started. <laughs> But then I remember going abroad and I remember really applying myself and getting a bit of confidence in myself. And I came home and I had done quite well over there. Um, I made the dean's list and everything like that. And I remember just thinking, wow, maybe maybe I am able to do this. And I sat with my supervisor at the time, who was one of my current supervisors. I'm very lucky to have two supervisors, but he's head of the department. And I remember sitting with him at the time and kind of being upset because I didn't know I were, where I wanted to go, but then thinking, would I be able for even just a master's at that stage? I remember talking to him about it and I'll never forget what he said. He was very honest and he said, look, everyone kind of starts off at a certain level. And then you see the ones who really enjoy if they do, they just start slowly going upwards. And it's like this curve. You just start really clicking into what you're doing and really getting it. And he said, it's not that your intelligence is more than anyone else's. It's your passion is kicking in. You suddenly okay. have this motivation and love for what you want to do. And it's your confidence in yourself. You suddenly realize I can do this. So you start displaying your talents then. So I remember thinking just if I really gave into these passions and stopped letting my own self-confidence hold me back, what would I be able to do? Um, so I applied for the MA and he suggested I do a thought MA rather than a research MA. So you'd end up doing half of your credits would be your module and the other half would be your thesis. So it's a nice mix of both research and still having that one-on-one -on -one class time. Um, the classes were quite small. There was about 10 students per class to one lecture. And so I loved that so much. And that's where... I suppose coming from the BA, I started loving fairy tales and I kind of moved away from them in my MA. And I remember thinking when I was doing my MA thesis, I love studying fantasy and I love studying heroes and what make these brilliant men, men. But I remember in the back of my head thinking, God, I really miss fairy tales. I miss reading about them. I miss studying them. I was actually really interested in hearing that your uh, BA program uh, offered you so much because you said that in that last year, you were able to actually get some teaching experience. Mm -hmm. And that's how you kind of figured out that maybe it wasn't what you were looking for. Yeah. Which is a bit scary to experience that during the BA already. And then also the semester abroad, you said you went to Pennsylvania, right? Yes, I went to Westchester University in Pennsylvania. All right. So uh, you took an extra few courses there and then came back to wrap up your studies. Yeah. So you do it in your off-campus placement is year three, and then you come back and complete year four in your home university then. So it's just before your final year. Okay, so the whole degree is four years? Yeah, your, the BA is four years, yeah. All right, because often I, I hear it's three years. I thought maybe that would be the last one. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I think maybe that's why we get the third year off campus. They make it four, but then give us that year to kind of explore what we want to do afterwards. So, But I think it's good because it does show, especially with your case, right, that um, it taught you what yeah. to, to explore what it actually is to be teaching English or history and then decide uh, if that works for you or not. Yeah. So um, I do hear a lot that... Uh, especially women who study English in universities actually go in because they want to be a teacher afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, what else would you be able to do with English literature? Was that a concern that you had when you figured, oh, 
I studied English, but I don't want to be a teacher. Then what am I going to do with English? It definitely was at first, but I think, again, I'm so grateful to my college. They have an incredible support system in place, both the placement office and then, of course, my head of department. They were so well able to help me focus on what I could do, okay. not what I didn't want to do. So I could move on into publishing. I could move on into project planning since your thesis is part of a project planning and I had done English. You can go on to editing. You can go on to academic editing, academic publishing. Uh, you could move on and do journalism if you wanted to do an add-on course. There was so much availability there that I hadn't even thought of, but they had so many people that you could go and talk to about this. Um, what was the possibility afterwards of moving onwards with this degree if your initial plan didn't work out? Right. That sounds very good. It sounds like it's a very supportive environment. And so early on, I think is also very important. Yeah, definitely. So you just mentioned that uh, you then continued with yeah. an MA because you did like studying uh, English a lot. Um, but then I saw that you took a little bit of a break from academia. So what did you do at that time? Uh, so I went out and I worked, really. I was a waitress and a pizza chef in an Italian restaurant, which okay. was so much fun. Anyone who knows me personally knows how clumsy I am. So me working in a kitchen is like... <laughs> Worst case scenario, but I loved it and I really got to meet a lot of really nice people and I got to grow my own confidence and my ability to talk to people and things like that. So it was, it was really, okay. really helpful. And then when I came back, the supervisors I wanted were available and also the current scholarship funding that I'm on was available as well. So it meant that I came back at the right time for both me and them. All right. So... So wait a minute, did you start working at the restaurant and I guess learning how to make really delicious pizzas um, <laughs> after the MA because you didn't know what you wanted to do? Or was it because you tried to apply for PhD programs and you hadn't got in yet, for example? Um, it was a mix of both, really. So I had held that position while I did my MA uh, just because I had extra time and I wanted to be able to work as well. But I think when I finished the MA, I got to a point where I had been in academics for so long that I worried that if I kept going, I wouldn't keep the same enthusiasm for it. And at that stage, I knew I wanted to do a PhD and I knew I wanted a lecture. So it wasn't about not knowing what I wanted to do. It was knowing what I wanted, but not feeling ready for it yet. And I think it's it's a okay. difficult conversation that sometimes you need to have with yourself that it's not that you're not able for something. It's just that now is not the right time. Um, and as well, the position was there if I wanted to apply for the funding, but my supervisor wasn't. They had too many um, right. supervisions that they had to do that year. So I just remember thinking that, you know, it would have been easy to move to another supervisor. And I did actually get some great support at that point from another academic in the department who has greatly influenced my project and I always thank him for it but it just got to the point where I realized the timeout would do me more good than harm and that I didn't need to work on anyone else's timeline but my own so whenever I was ready to come back it just seemed to work out in harmony that both the funding and my supervisors were there and that I was ready and it really did work out for the best because I think so far I've had such a good experience so Right. I do think that there is such a thing as uh, the right time and the right place, that there's a right time, right place for everything. Yeah. Um, and it all just comes together, right? Because it's not only for you, as you said, but also your supervisor, other people busy funding other applicants. You never know how it works exactly, but somehow it all falls into place at some point. Yeah. And luckily for you also, it did when it did. Uh, but I do also hear a lot um, in your story, and you also mentioned that during the BA already, during your little existential <laughs> crisis, um, about uh, confidence, having enough confidence to say, okay, I am a smart lady, um, I'm going to pursue a PhD. So what do you think others can also do or learn how to become more confident about their own abilities? I think the big thing that really helped me at least was finding value in who I was. 
in the sense of really listening when someone compliments you. It's such an Irish trait that when someone compliments you, you just kind of brush it off. And I think I needed to really understand that there was a logic behind why they were complimenting me. They saw something in me worth saying. And I know everyone deals with imposter syndrome and especially in academics because we're performing at such a high standard all the time. We're our own worst critics. But I think when you realize Mm -hmm. that the only person you have to impress is yourself, the only person you have to be better than is the person you were yesterday. And I think internalizing that sense of confidence and being able to be okay with who you are and what you can present really, really helped. And I stopped Not that I don't take criticism anymore. I'm not disregarding anyone's input in my work. That would be silly. Um, But it's more so that if I know that I'm putting the best I have to offer into my project, then it's perfect the way it is. It's that side of confidence. It's not the confidence where I think I'm the best person ever, but that my one little voice in academics is probably worth everyone else's. It doesn't mean it's better or worse than anyone's. It's just worth the same. And I think it was realizing that that really helped. That sounds really good and healthy. Yeah. uh, To look at it that way, to not get stressed out with every little critique you might get, because that is part of academia. Of course, when you hand in work, you will get some revisions and things to change, which is supposed to improve the work. And also you as a researcher, especially when you're an early career researcher or a PhD student and still learning how to get everything going. Yeah. Uh, So that's a good thing. But yeah, you have to give it the right place, right? Don't take it personally. Yeah, exactly. Take it as, as it is, meaning it's supposed to make you better. It's not supposed to break you down. So don't let it break you down either. Yeah. It's like, it's like anything. It's like when you're learning how to do something. Would you go to someone who has no idea about it or would you go to an expert? I always think that when I'm getting criticism, it's coming from an expert. It's coming from someone who has done this for so long. And I think when you change your mindset on where the criticism is coming from, it's coming from a good place intended to help you. And it says nothing about you. It's just your work. And I also think that a big thing that I learned, especially this year, was that you don't have to accept every criticism you get right not every review of your paper has to go like if you disagree with something you can say that's not the angle I wanted to take I appreciate your view but that's not where I was going and I think that takes it takes an awful lot to be able to say that but when you reach that point you suddenly realize I have so much freedom right yeah (laughs) I can disagree with people (laughs) and that's scary to do as an early career researcher it's so scary to think that you should disagree with someone or take a different point of view because you suddenly think oh well I'm the new person I shouldn't Mm -hmm. but if you don't have new ideas where's progress going to come from exactly yeah and I think that part of the freedom that you just mentioned is what attracts so many to uh, work as a researcher right or work in an academic institution because that provides you with that freedom um, of where you want to take your own research to a certain extent of course but as you mentioned it Yeah. yeah All right. Was there a special point in that time next to the pizza oven where you felt this is it? Now I'm ready. I'm going to do a PhD. Or was it something that just came up along the time? I think there definitely was a point that I just realized, I think I am able for this. I remember, I remember talking to my mom one night. And I always say a presentation is good if I can do it in front of my mom and dad and they understand what I'm talking about. So they're in no way involved in my research, but if they can understand what I'm talking about, then my presentation has a chance of being good. But there was one evening and I was speaking to my mom and dad, I was talking about my day at work and I had said, oh, someone said this, and that's really like that philosopher. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm definitely ready to go back because even in my day-to-day life, what I want to research is starting to leak in. It's starting to be in my subconscious. It's there. I'm ready to go. I just remember thinking, okay, I have to start planning to go back now. I have to start applying. I have to start the applications, the dreaded applications that we all love. And I remember the next morning I emailed my supervisor here in the college and I said, look, I'm ready to come back. Please have me. 
And he was like, yeah, excellent. We have another lady in this semester who really focuses on what you do. I think she'd be a brilliant addition. I said, yes, let's go. Instead of one supervisor, now I have two incredible supervisors. So yeah, it was just, it was sending off that one email. And I remember being very fearful doing it because what happens if it was another rejection? What happens if it was a, I'm not available this year? What do I do then? Do I wait another year? And I remember really panicking about it. And I remember saying to my mom and dad, who are my best friends, um, I'm very grateful for my parents, but I remember saying to them, you know, I I wanted to have my PhD before I was 30. And I remember my dad looking at me and asking why, why was 30 important? I was like, I don't know. I don't know why (laughs) I had that number in my head for so many years. I don't understand. So it was just realizing that I needed to do it in my own time, on my own timeline, and that it, it, what was important was getting the PhD, not what time I got it at. That's very good. Yeah, I, I recognize uh, the number 30, actually, because I just celebrated my birthday, my 30th, last week. <laughs> no way. So that was, a, it felt like a big milestone. And obviously, I'm still doing my PhD. Um, I'm not sure if I actually really thought I was ever able to do it earlier, because I still have another year left in the official program. Mm. Uh, So that would have been ridiculous (laughs) if I would have. Uh, And I'm totally fine with it now. Now that I passed that age, (laughs) I also feel... Okay, it happened. So, you know, we're continuing. It's fine. It's not like something (laughs) changed or anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, But I I hear you a little bit on (laughs) what you felt about that number at the time. All right. I also wanted to ask you, um, because you said, what if I get another rejection? And then what am I going to do the next year? Were you nervous about any university program not taking you seriously when you applied for doing a PhD researching fairy tales? No, I have to say. And only because I was probably putting all of my eggs into one basket, I only applied to Mary I for a PhD because I knew I wanted to be here. It, it, It had to be here nowhere. I was very determined. And I think because of who I was applying to, this particular academic had always made me feel that any interest I had was valuable and worthwhile. Anything I had an interest in or wanted to research was valuable and that studying fairy tales should be taken just as seriously as studying Freud or studying Derrida or studying poets. Right. Why should one be more important than the other? So honestly, I've never felt that. I've never worried people won't take me seriously because of my research. I've always thought my voice is just as important to be heard as somebody else's just because the subject matter is considered childish or anything I kind of think how many children can name Beauty and the Beast okay now how many children can name Freud right <laughs> yeah I've one up to you already <laughs> it sounds like you really integrated everything you mentioned before that you are now confident enough to know enough about the topic and to take that topic seriously enough um that it is and that you just went for it so that sounds yeah. very good it all came together like you said All right, so why don't you tell us a little bit more about your PhD research and feminism and fairy tales? Lovely. (laughs) This is the one I always get asked by everyone, so I have it down to a single sentence. (laughs) Okay, wow. I am studying the concept of beauty as a power source for women in the fairy tale Beauty and the Beast and Chosen Adaptations. Um, So I've done other articles that I have submitted and have been rejected and accepted and I'm waiting on acceptance or rejection and I love the whole process. I'm a bit sadistic in that sense. I love Mm -hmm. the process of submitting things. I don't know why. Um, So beyond my thesis, my research has gone into other fairy tales, but my main thesis sticks to Beauty and the Beast and this concept of how beauty works as a source of power for women in obtaining that happily ever after, the ultimate ending for women in that particular fairy tale, and in most particular princess-orientated fairy tales, as I like to call them. Right. That sounds about right. Okay, and you're not only looking into uh, the story that you and I grew up um, here in, let's say, the Western world, Mm. right? Um, because you're also looking into stories in different languages, in different cultural settings uh, that also have different concepts of beauty. Yeah. So because there was that choice of adaptation, 
I didn't want to just do Eurocentric adaptations or Americanized adaptations. If I was going to do adaptations, I wanted a little bit from everywhere, which is difficult in one sense because it means your focus is very broad. But in another sense, I have a main theory that I can thread through each adaptation. And once I have a main structure of a fairy tale, I'm able to show how each adaptation either changes that structure, um, ignores that structure or completely copies it. So I think being able to recognize the fairy tale that you and I grew up with in other texts was very important as well because it showed a value to fairy tales as well because it showed this doesn't just stop at bedtime stories. This continues on and reaches people in different cultures, different age groups, different experiences. So I think as global as that sounds, it was very important for me to choose as many different adaptations as I could. And it was very exciting, actually, choosing the different adaptations. I found myself going down some very strange rabbit holes of research, trying to find them. (laughs) The erotic novel one, especially. (laughs) (laughs) I bet, yeah. (laughs) Is that an an English one, though, or also one from a different culture? Uh, It is an American author, but they have okay. uh, British authors, American authors, Eurocentric authors. It's Fairy tales are very well adapted in the erotic literature world, which I don't know if okay. that's worrying or quite nice to think that fairy tales follow us in all stages of life, but it's strange in one sense. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Trying to pitch that to your supervisors is a little strange. <laughs> so I'd like to talk about sex, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, maybe maybe we should. Maybe research should also open up that box. Um, as you said, it is also a big lo- uh, part of our lives. Um, so why should science not look into it? We have also spoken to researchers who actually uh, research porn. Yeah. Yeah. But the interesting part with her was that she doesn't actually watch it herself because she has research assistant do that for her. <laughs> I wish I had so a research that, assistant. <laughs> yeah. Well, different dimensions to research and, and these topics. Yeah. But to be honest, when I was just thinking about how you're saying like, yeah, fairy tales follow us our whole lives. It's not something like a bedtime story and then a Disney movie and that's it. Um, because my partner is the same age as me he's almost going to be 30 yeah and he never told me oh there's so many things i want to do before 30 i think it's something that women struggle more with yeah and maybe it also yeah. has to do something with age right becoming older maybe not so eligible anymore after yeah. 30 right which is also something that comes with beauty and with these fairy tales um and looking for the happy uh, ever after yeah. And that's that's the thing as well, is that I think as someone who doesn't consider themselves conventionally attractive, like I have my own attractiveness, I have my own beauty that some day someone will see. Um, but as someone who is outside of the conventions of beauty, I was able to look at it in both ways in that one it's a huge pressure put on women and now men as well as the beauty industry and cosmetic industry is starting to include men in these expectations. It is a huge expectation setting on women and men and how they should appear and how they should look. Um, I always tell the joke, for example, like women need to be like young, blonde, like big boobs, big butts, small waist. And then men need to be the 666. They need to be six feet tall, have a six pack and make six figures. And that's the ideal power right. couple. <laughs> like that. Okay. <laughs> that is exactly. But then there's the other side of it that I think an awful lot of adaptations that I have found anyway, villainize beauty. And I don't understand why, because okay. you don't villainize someone who's athletic because their genes make them athletic. So why villainize someone because their genes make them contemporary beautiful? Some people work at being beautiful. They diet, they exercise, they take care of their skin, they take care of their hair. We all have our little beauty regimes. So why villainize someone who follows that? And I think by taking that stance, this research has evolved into, instead of questioning the beauty, why don't adaptations question the happily ever after? Why does my value to someone else have to be my happily ever after? Why can't my value to myself be my happily ever after. 
I always make this joke if me having a really good lecturing position, a little eco house in the woods and as many golden retrievers as I can afford, that's my happily ever after. It's not a prince. It's not a sunset. It's fluffy dogs. (laughs) So why is that worthless? You know, and I just think it's something to be considered that instead of villainizing traits, one trait over another, why not adapt the ending to fit everybody? Right. I never thought about it that way yet. So that's interesting. Yeah. (laughs) All right. You are currently in the second year of your PhD. So you still have some time left, obviously. Yes, thankfully. Um, But do you have any results or any expectations or hypotheses yet? Um, I think that would be my main one that I'd love to see adaptation theory start to handle endings of fairy tales rather than, like I said, the traits and things like that. Um, I'd love to eventually continue this research onto other fairy tales, um, hopefully publish my findings in some sort of text or monograph or something like that. But I think the main sort of takeaway that I have thus far in my research is that, is that I genuinely think that as good as an attempt as adaptations have made in applying fairy tales to contemporary society, that they have failed in recent years. And I do think that taking on the ending is potentially another way to go. Like, why does the love of beauty have to be a romantic love? Why can't they become best friends and restore the prince to realizing that he needs to be selfless and help others? And that he can look beyond appearances, but that doesn't mean he has to fall in love with someone. Why does the Little Mermaid have to lose her tail for a human? Why can't it be for her want to adventure on land? She's seen the sea now, now I want to see the land. You know, why can't the motivations behind these characters be different? Why can't anyone's sense of happily ever after be accepted? Because I think that takes into account gender expectations heteronormative expectations, racial expectations. I think it covers an awful lot. And I think with that, we'd be able to see an awful lot more representation in these tales that we're so familiar with. I always say that fairy tales create expectations for us. They're one of the first didactic tales we ever experience. And so they teach you, if you are good and kind, you will be rewarded. And that's not a bad thing. It's the reward that's the difficult part, I think. All right, so... I'm also looking forward to that uh, monograph because that's what you're writing, right? Eventually, uh, Eventually. to see what <laughs> your results would be. And also, uh, it seems that you're already thinking about what should be the next steps. What can we do to change uh, these views that we have that are so entrenched yeah. in very traditional norms, right? I do have one more question just out of curiosity relating the research topic. And that is because you're looking into stories that also are adapted uh, in South Korea and in Japan. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you see very, very different things or are the stories basically the same? There are differences. And I always think that I'm coming from a Eurocentric mind looking at Asian texts. I'm sure they could argue the same that coming from an Asian mind They're looking at Eurocentric texts. So I just feel that fairy tales and morally driven tales are global because it's our way of teaching. It's our way of creating expectations. And so that even though the understanding of beauty might be different, like, for example, in our version of Beauty and the Beast or our our Eurocentric version of Cinderella, there's always that mythical, magical element that makes Cinderella beautiful or that turns the prince into a beast. Whether I have found in the Asian culture adaptations, it's more grounded so that this sense of a beast is more metaphorical. It's in a couple of the adaptations, it's a man who's a shut-in who doesn't want to part of society. In the Japanese adaptation, the beast is actually played in the role of the woman. They're gender swapped. And it's the woman presents herself as non-traditional. She always wears a black cloak. She loves anything gothic and horror. And that's very against what society expects of women. They want them to be feminine and pleasing to the eye. And that's how they experience expectations of feminism. And then, of course, in the South Korean versions, their society is an awful lot more equipped and used to experiencing cosmetic surgery. So instead of a magic wand transforming Cinderella, it's done through full body cosmetic surgery and they create a new woman. 
there's a formula for beauty there. It's been commercialized as much as we give out about cosmetics and things like that. They have an actual mathematical and scientific formula for creating a perfect face. And whether that's good or bad, I don't want to pass an opinion on it because it's a cultural thing. You know, if you can, if, if someone turned around to you and said, two weeks of pain and you can have your perfect, perfect ideal, you can have your perfect face, would you do it? I feel like morally we should say no. But there's a part of you that's like, ooh, if I woke up every morning and loved everything about my face, no more spots, no more bloating, no more my eyes are too small, my nose is too big, would I take it? So, you know, there's there's always two right. sides to the, the story. And I am the devil on the shoulder. I always look at both sides. As you should, right? As a researcher. Uh, and yeah. probably that's why you're also so good at what you do. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> there's always two sides and it's important to look at both, I think. All right. Well, I think your uh, research topic is very interesting and it's also very accessible for me as someone who has not studied anything, English, literature, history, things like that. Uh, so thanks for sharing that. Um, before I wrap up, I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about doing a PhD um, in a pandemic, because when you yes. started, the pandemic had already started, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, now, hopefully, um, it's becoming spring. The sun is starting to sh shine here in Germany. And uh, also in the Netherlands, I know that um, all of the last corona measures have been cancelled as of today. It seems that we're climbing out of it, maybe again, but maybe this time yeah. <laughs> forever. <laughs> yes. Um, what is it like as a PhD student to have started in a pandemic, in a very abnormal situation. And now that everything is maybe going back to normal, you mm. don't actually know what the normal is. So how, how is this transitioning? Are you going back to class? I see that you're now sitting in your own office again. Um, are you also going to conferences in person this time? What's that like? I have loved both sides of it. I loved my first year being so in my own space, being able to focus on my work. I was able to get so much done. Being able to attend conferences online meant that I got to go to conferences that normally I would never have been able to go to. So the availability was amazing. But then I look at this year and so currently, so I've been back on campus this year. I've been teaching in person since September, which has been amazing because okay. I actually get to see my students. I just do little tutorials with some of the first year undergraduates, but it's so lovely to be able to see faces now. Um, we lifted our mask mandate about two weeks ago, so you only have to wear masks in a medical setting now. But I make sure everyone's comfortable with me taking mine off when I'm teaching, just in case anyone has anyone at high risk or anything like that. But in this way, it's been so lovely because I get to see people again and I get to actually teach and you get to work off that energy and really engage with your students. Um, I'm just home from Baltimore. I was in Baltimore last week at a conference at the Northeast Modern Language Association. And I spoke at it last year online and I spoke at it this year in person. And the difference was incredible because I got to meet so many people. I got to see Judith Butler speak in the flesh. So they're a huge name in gender theory and gender studies. So to see them speak in person and to get to ask them a question has been like the highlight of my life so far. <laughs> That's a very dramatic <laughs> way of putting it, but it was. So there's been pros to both. And of course, there's been cons to both. It was difficult coming back into society and being around people. And as an introvert, I love my alone time. So I found that quite difficult. Um, but no, I, I found it difficult at first, but I just think that everyone is feeling the same way. And so that if it just takes one person to say it, I've missed this. I've missed you. I enjoy this. And I think if being in lockdown has taught us anything is that we can't really take anything for granted, as cheesy as that sounds. So by just saying, I even say to my students, I love seeing them on a Monday. And at first, the whole room would be so silent and they'd just be looking at me like, who What? is this person? But this <laughs> week I said it to them again. I said, I actually missed you last week, guys. It's so nice to be back. I really look forward to Mondays. And one person in the back piped up and said, same. And I was like, this has made my whole week now. Thank you. So 
pros and cons to both, but a hard transition, definitely. But worth it in the end, I think. As long as we keep each other safe and think of others, I think we'll hopefully get through this and things are slowly going back to normal, I think. Yes, that sounds great. Okay, so you are hopeful uh, for the, at least the near future of the PhD. Um, yeah. And it's still early on, so it might not really be fair to ask, but it is the question of the podcast, so I will anyway. <laughs> and that is, what are you going to do with that? What do you plan? What do you th see yourself doing with the PhD or after the PhD? Uh, I'm going to take over the world. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. If only. Um, ideally, I would love to hold as many postdoc positions as I could for a couple of years, teach everywhere, okay. get as much experience as I could. When I feel like I have something to contribute to the amazing staff here, I'd always, the ideal is always to come home again, right? You know, no matter how far we wander, to come home is always amazing. So um, I would love to end up back in Mary Eye at some stage in my life. Hint, hint, if anyone from Mary Eye is listening, hold a position for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I won't even this is the but, point. Um, this is this is it, guys. This is my this is my interview for the next five years. Um, but no, I would I do think that being able to experience different thought processes and different ways of teaching would be incredible. So to hold as many different positions as I can in different universities would be incredible. I want to keep on with fairy tales, their adaptations, and how they can work as one of the cornerstones to adapting to an ever-changing society and hopefully deal with some of the society issues that we're facing in terms of gender, equality, race, things like that. Um, I'm hoping to write at least one book, definitely from this. Um, I know you, like, in fairy tale studies, you have the big names like Tartar and um, Zipes and things like that. If I could get my name at least mentioned with them at some stage, okay. I'd be happy. Um, but yeah, it's, you've got your, I think the important thing when people ask you, what are you going to do with it? The one thing I have found that's been really helpful is to have your small goals, but then to have your big goals. No goal is ever too big. You can say, I want to someday be head of a department. That's what I'd love. I'd love to be head of a department. I'd love to have a module on fairy tales. That's what I would love. And then small little goals. I want to have my first citation. The first day someone uses my name as a citation, I'll be happy. I'll know I have met it. So, and one of my other goals was to get my own lanyard with a name on it. And I got that last week at the conference I was at. So goals oh, are going well so far. <laughs> and not to forget the golden retriever. Yes, thank you. Yes, well. almost forgot. <laughs> at least two because they need a buddy. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> Great. That sounds really good. Uh, I like that idea of setting both small goals for yourself that are more achievable on a, a shorter run but also bigger ones and to dare to dream, right? Yeah. Very good. And the small steps might eventually get you there. So fingers crossed. Yeah. Good luck with your PhD for now. Uh, we'll see what the future brings. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. I then have a few last short questions again to wrap up with. And my first one is... What do you consider to be a most important contribution to your field? And that is, of course, just so far. Right? So far, I have had a couple of people when they listen to my research say, I didn't think of it that way. And it seems quite small, but it means that I've tapped into something that other people might not have thought of. So the main thing would be adapting the happily ever after. A lot of academics that I've said this to, even in adaptation studies, have said, oh, I didn't think of it that way. So I think that's so far one of the main contributions I've had is having something a thought that not everyone has thought of already. So probably quite small and underwhelming. I'm sorry, I haven't done anything big yet. Let me let me get there. <laughs> no, but you're still on your way. So that's yeah. totally fine. And that's how you start, right? With bringing out your own ideas and sharing them with others and then hearing that, oh, maybe no one else has actually thought about that yet. Mm -hmm. So that makes it even more interesting. That's right. Okay, then who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? You'll probably be very embarrassed for me to mention this, but one of my supervisors and the head of the department here in Mary Immaculate College, Eugene O'Brien, Dr. Eugene O'Brien, has the longest CV 
or resume I have ever seen in my life. It's like 50 pages. <laughs> and my other supervisor is just as impressive. No. They are both <laughs> so involved in everything they do. And they're both so consistent in their research that it's just so impressive the passion they have for what they do and the way they do it. It's just, they're, those, they're these kind of people that, and you probably have them in your life as well, Danny. When you talk to them, you come away feeling motivated. And it, what you want to do might not have anything to do with what they're doing, but they make you feel motivated and they make you feel like, yeah, I can go for this. I can, I can do this. So definitely the most impressive person I've ever met in my life. And he's one of the kindest, most genuine people as well. And it's so frustrating because he's so lovely, but so good at everything. <laughs> and he's also nice. Yeah, I know. And he's funny so. and he's just, he's brilliant. And to watch him give a lecture is just half the time, and he'll kill me for saying this, but half the time in my BA, I'd have no idea what he was talking about because I'd just be listening to him talk and being like, this is incredible. If I can do this one day, and then I'd have to re-clue back in my brain and be like, oh yes, learning. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's up to you to decide if you want to let him know about this episode to listen or not. <laughs> but I'm sure he'll appreciate it. And be like, look what <laughs> nice. I did. Here is the link. I'm curious to hear what he thinks. <laughs> He's very, both of them, both them, both of Eugene and Deirdre Flynn's my other supervisor, both of them are so supportive. They want to know everything that I That's do. Great. So they'll both be getting <laughs> links to this. <laughs> All right. The last question I have is the easiest one. Oh. Yes. And that's is how do you relax after a hard day of work? After a hard day of editing and reading, I sit down and I read some more. <laughs> <laughs> really? I love reading. I love, so reading and maybe watercolor painting. Painting watercolors are my two favorite ways to relax. If I'm too tired to do either of them, but I love sitting outside in the garden with my mom. I make her a cup of coffee and we sit outside and have a chat. So that's what one of my ways to are relax. are you reading at the moment, when I ask? At the moment, I'm reading Jane Eyre. So I've reread it about 11 times now, but my best friend is getting married next year and I'm her maid of honor. So as her wedding present, each month leading up to the wedding, she's getting a different classical romance. And I've annotated it and written in different quotes that I like and how they relate to our friendship or her love with her partner so that's so sweet um, I'm trying to stay ahead of myself and read it so well we both love literature and it's what's connected us always and we love Pride and Prejudice and Emma and all those so um, I'm almost finished it it's taken me almost two days to read at this stage so it's been good though I've enjoyed it but other than that any any fantasy that I can get my hands on I love okay sounds good well, thank you so much for joining us today, Holly. I really enjoyed our chat and I hope that our listeners did too. So thanks again for listening. We would love to hear from you. So don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform and to connect with us on social media with the handle what to do with that. All right. So you have a wedding coming up. I'm sure there will be some feminism and fairy tales involved there as well. <laughs> I'll try to get them in as, as much as I can. So, well, she's getting married in a castle, so... Wow. That's the fairy tale already there. <laughs> <laughs>